Hello and welcome to this edition of the Screen Podcast, which is the podcast for the global screen business publication, Screen International. I'm Matt Mueller, Screen's editor, and in this episode, we're going to be discussing the British contenders which are out to storm the Oscar and BAFTA podiums this year. And for that, I'm joined once again by my illustrious colleagues, Vanula Halligan, Screen's chief film critic and reviews editor, and Charles Gant, our awards and box office editor. So after the three of us break down the British contenders in this year's race, Finn also recently spoke to filmmaker Joanna Hogg about The Souvenir Part 2, her absorbing sequel to the first Souvenir, in which Honor Swinton Byrne reprises her role as film school student Julie. In Finn's interview, she asked the British filmmaker about how the two films fit together, and you'll be able to listen to her interview later. But first, the British are coming. The British are always coming for the BAFTAs and Oscars, it feels like, with British talent always a huge part of the mix of any award season. For today's podcast, we're looking at these British films, but a good place to start may be what defines a British film in the eyes of BAFTA, where some of the recent winners of the Outstanding British Film category have raised a few eyebrows. Gravity won the category in 2013, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri won the category in 2017, and last year the prize went to Promising Young Woman. All films with American settings, American characters, and American stories. So Charles, how does BAFTA define what qualifies as a British film? Well, I think the key clause in the rules is about this significant creative involvement by individuals who are British, who must be either British passport holders or have resided in the UK for the past six years. So I think that's the key one. And of course, that would qualify Ridley Scott, the director of and producer of House of Gucci. It would qualify uh, Paul Webster, who's the producer of Spencer, which was uh, also, of course, set in the UK, albeit I think mainly filmed in Germany. And then it also has to pass two of the four BFI diversity tests uh, which must include the one that's about industry access and opportunities. So it is quite complicated and it definitely leads to a few, even though we're kind of familiar with it. I think every year you look at the list and you go, oh, I just didn't realise Cruella was a British film. And the ultimate list is decided on by a committee, Charles, isn't it, from BAFTA? Yeah, they have to uh, certify, that kind of go through the films and kind of sign off on them. So rather than having, I think any rule, you know, is never going to be written so specifically that you don't need someone to kind of actually just kind of check and give it a tick. That's right. And so, yes, as you mentioned, we have House of Gucci this year. We have Spencer. We have Cyrano was one that was also qualified as British, the Peter Dinklage uh, starring film that Joe mm-hmm. Wright directed uh, obviously the Serrano de Bergerac story. So a lot of interesting films in the mix for the outstanding British film potentially this year. Looking at those specifically, these very British films, Finn and Charles, which ones stand out to you out of the particular ones that have qualified as British that we might not necessarily think of British automatically? I was just going to add actually one to your mix, and it's funny how we can feel different ways about different films, but Passing would be another one of those films. I mean, that's American set. It's directed by Rebecca Hall, and it's a absolutely beautiful small title which premiered at Sundance and is a definite awards contender for acting performances from Ruth Negger and Tessa Thompson and in a way I kind of I sort of feel you know oh gosh wouldn't it be great if that won best British film you know House of Gucci doesn't really need the help of being best British film so so you've got to be non-hypocritical really don't you and sort of say that it's probably the same situation here so um out of the ones that are ostensibly seem so very American are seems so not very British, I'd say Passing is probably the one that's closest to my heart. Although they're all good films. I'm a fan of Passing. I, I do like Serrano. I think Serrano is a, 
really lovely film, great performance by Peter Dinklage. I'm not sure it kind of really needs to be in this category. I, I think we would hopefully see it flourishing in other categories. Of course, Promising Young Woman last year, which is entirely set in the United States, was nominated in this category from a British filmmaker, and it won. It won the category. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's interesting that BAFTA have expanded this category in recent years, potentially as a way to make inclusions like Gravity stand out less. Obviously, you know, in 2013, they actually expanded the number of nominees from five to six. And last year, they expanded it from six to 10. And so we did have the sort of more distinctly British films in the category last year, for instance, you know, obviously His House, Limbo, Rocks, St. Maud, alongside the likes of Promising Young Woman and the Mauritanian, uh, with, as you'd say, sort of Charles Promising Young Woman eventually winning the category. Matt, I totally agree. I think the problem with films like Gravity qualifying in the past, it was always like, that's great, but it's at the expense of a smaller British film. Whereas I think now that we have 10 nominees, actually, you know, you can find room you know, for one of these not seemingly terribly British films, because at least a lot of smaller films do get a good shot at the nomination. Yeah, absolutely. And when you look at the likes of House of Gucci, Cyrano, Spencer, these these are films that are very much going to be big plays with Oscar voters as well, correct? These are some of the leading contenders. And I think when you're looking, you're probably asking an Ampass voter, they probably wouldn't look at these films and say, oh, yeah, it's a British film. They, you know, I mean, it's a, these are obviously all very... Well, I mean, Spence is a British story, but, you know, mainly American stories. Yeah, for sure. I think another film that they won't have any problem considering to be British that is also in major contention for awards at Oscar and BAFTA is, of course, Belfast, Kenneth Branagh's film. And I would be absolutely amazed if it's not nominated for the BAFTA British film, and but also for multiple other categories. I agree with you there. And it's it's one of those, um, you know, sometimes the split between in British films can come between the bigger productions that you might not have a cultural affinity with, or you think that you don't, but, you know, that's, that we've just discussed that, but are the smaller films, the sort of more gritty independent films, and kind of Kenneth Branagh's Belfast straddles the two quite well, you know, it's 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 uh, broadly accessible, it's it's quite, you know, although it's a smaller film, it's, it's very lush to look at, it's very high production values, you know, big push behind it, big push in the States, and like Charles, I would expect to see that coming up in multiple categories and be a very, very strong BAFTA contender, while also being an Academy Award contender as well in in a serious way. And we are coming off the BIFA ceremony, uh, which took place earlier this week from when we are recording this. And the big winner there, of course, was After Love, which won six awards on the night, including Best British Independent Film, Best Director and Debut Director from our former screen star tomorrow, Aleem Khan, and also Best Actress for Joanna Scanlon. So does this become a genuine BAFTA contender off the back of these awards, do you think? Well, I think it is a genuine BAFTA contender. I think, you know, most obviously in Outstanding British Debut, which is a completely juried award, but I'd be shocked if the jury didn't nominate it. I think it positions it really well for the Outstanding British film. But I see it actually, you know, more than that, I really do, particularly for Joanna Scanlon in the actress category. And given the way that BAFTA has revised the way that that category works, where you have, you know, the first round voting from the members, and then you get a jury that augments their choices, and then you have another jury that picks the nominees. So I think given the way that that process works, as long as Joanna makes, I think, something like the top 
I think it's like the top 22 in the first round, which I, I really think she would, you know, I can see a really clear path to a nomination for her, which is entirely deserved. Yes, I mean, I think it looks like, you know, for, for the outstanding British film or, or, you know, in an ideal world, what I, you know, what would be great is to see it come down to the souvenir, which didn't get nominated when it was the souvenir part one. And now we have the souvenir part two. So in my mind, it's a it's a good idea to acknowledge both films, though. I know you only vote for the for the film in hand and Belfast. I would also like to, because of an anomaly um, with the sort of times of releases, whatever, to refresh our minds on how fantastic the nest is <laughs> and, uh, and the brilliant performances that we have from Carrie Coon and Jude Law, because we all saw that this time last year, roughly, and then the pandemic and whatever and Sundance and it sort of fell between the cracks. But I really, really hope that BAFTA gives it gives it a good show because that is one great film too so I'm with you on that one Finn Sean Durkin's The Nest and of course it it got a lot of nominations at the British Independent Film Awards including in the key categories best British independent film director and screenplay unfortunately the jury didn't give it any love on the night but hopefully I think it may just have felt not quite British enough to win the British Independent Film Awards but um, hopefully BAFTA will take a different view Jude Law must certainly, I mean, I, I don't think I, I've seen him be better. I mean, surely, you know, even with the fog of time and different release schedules and everything else like that, I mean, I, I would be hopeful that he gets recognition on that. It's great performance. And Carrie Coon, too. And what do we think about the chances now for the souvenir part, too? I mean, which did stumble in the sort of, uh, in the bigger categories at Biffa, but did sort of take some of the, you know, the sort of smaller awards, for instance, costume design and editing. Is that still a big BAFTA play? Obviously, Joanna Hogg, you know, people sort of felt maybe perhaps it's a more accessible film than the first Souvenir. I don't know if you both agree with that. Like Finn, I'm a big fan of the Souvenir part two. I think it's a great film. What happened with the first film, I don't know if people recall, it was that it got a bunch of nominations at the British Independent Film Awards didn't win anything at all, and then did not achieve BAFTA nominations. This time around, at least it won those three craft awards at the Biffers, which, you know, gives it a bit of momentum. You know, most of the bigger prizes at the Biffers are determined by a jury. So you get like a few people who don't really embrace Joanne Hogg's kind of either style of filmmaking or subject matter, perhaps don't feel it's totally in line with the gritty ethos of the of the Biffers. I would love to see it flourish at the BAFTAs, and I think it really, really does deserve to. I mean, obviously, we're very in line with that, Charles. I mean, I can sort of, in a way, if I stretch my, myself to be an understanding person, I can sort of realise that she has a very singular vision and she puts herself first and foremost. And, that, you know, the, the, the story is her personal story. It's an alter ego. It's a very kind of, you know, um, deliberate piece. And that if you don't like the character that you see on screen, maybe you won't like the film. You'll find yourself rubbed up, you know, it rubs you up the wrong way or there's something you, you know, so because I know that there's been vocal advocates kids and people who also don't like it but at the same time I, I would really really hope that you know the voters can take a step back and acknowledge how great she really is and how lucky we are to have her working in the UK she's a great filmmaker you know she really really is and so I hope that um the tables get turned this time around if we also look at maybe some candidates for the British debut category, I think obviously, again, Biffa throws up some names. I mean, Aleem Khan, certainly for his writing, directing debut, After Love, which we've been discussing, but also Prana Bailey Bond, another former screen tar- scar tomorrow for Censor, must be in the mix as well. There's a lot of uh, competition this year, isn't there, for that category? 
Yeah, and also, I mean, there were some names that didn't feature at the Biffers in that category. It'd be interesting to see if BAFTA find a way of including Reggie Yates for Pirates, which I think is a really lovely, charming film set on New Year's Eve uh, 1999. Epic road movie from North London to South London. And then we have Amal Amin's Boxing Day, which is, you know, great to see a black British filmmaker making something very commercially ambitious that's a sort of, you know, 2021 ethnically diverse love actually, I guess you could say, you know, with a real ambition to connect with the audiences. Whether or not the jury will, you know, respond to those those films, it's really, it's really hard to say. It isn't a debut, of course, Charles, but what do you feel about Boiling Point? I thought that was a terrific British feature, amazing central performance, very ambitious, very entertaining, edge of the seat stuff. What's your feeling on that? Well, it's a real shame it's not a debut because, um, is it Philip Barantini, the director? He had this film called Villain, which came out in February 2020, just before the COVID pandemic. And I kind of wondered, oh, maybe it got a really tiny release and it won't qualify. You know, was his debut. This can be the debut. But I looked into it and I really, I really don't think Boiling Point can be a debut. I really enjoyed the film. I remember the short of the same name, which I enjoyed. I think they've expanded it to a feature very successfully. And I think Stephen Graham is great in the movie. One of my favourite performances, and she did win the supporting actress Biffa, is Vinette Robinson, who's someone who's been on our screens for over 20 years. I'm embarrassed to say that I was not that familiar with her name. I recognised her face and I think she's fantastic in the film. I would love it if BAFTA voters could give her performance attention every time, even though it's very ensemble, apart from Stephen, I think the rest of the cast is very ensemble. But I think that whenever the camera is on her, you're you're just really riveted by what she's doing. That's true. And that's what's great about the Biffers. Sometimes they they are able to highlight people that we might have sort of taken for granted performances, you know, craft contributions as well. They 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 are very good at kind of uncovering British talent and, and, and bringing it up. And uh, just one more uh, question on the Biffers. I, although she didn't win Best Documentary for Cow, it's such a distinctive film. And Andrea Arnold is such a obviously hugely respected filmmaker in the UK industry. Do you think she has a chance at the, at the BAFTAs for the best documentary category with, with Cal? Finn, do you want to go on this? I was just going to ask, could it be an um, outstanding British film? It absolutely could be outstanding British film. We have had documentaries nominated in this category in the past, including For Summer was nominated. Last year, I think I'm correct in saying there were no documentaries, but with Andrea Arnold, by all means, the documentary category is international. So you're competing with a whole load of films and it's always very hard to predict because there are so many, many films. I think last year when we saw the documentary nominations, we thought it was quite mainstream and My Octopus Teacher ended up winning as it did the Oscar. There's an awful lot of people who are into the documentary chapter they may not all be down with Andrew Arnold's style of filmmaking. So, be, yeah, very interesting to see how that one pans out. So we have some key voting dates coming up. BAFTA round one voting opens the day after actually we re- recorded this podcast on December 10th, and that will close on January 3rd. 
Oscar voting for a preliminary shortlist also opened on the 10th, but only for a brief window of six days that closes on the 15th. And those shortlists for categories, including international feature animation and documentary will be revealed on December 21st. So we look forward to seeing those. And despite the fact that there won't be a ceremony this year, following the controversy around the HMFPA's very undiverse membership, the Golden Globes are refusing to sit it out this year, and we will hear their nominations on December 13th, followed by the Independent Spirit nominations on the 14th. So award season, it is fair to say, is now in full swing. It's all to play for at this stage. And so let's talk about some of the British films that we haven't really touched on yet. Uh, there's obviously a lot of uh, key contenders this year. We have Mothering Sunday. We have, obviously, No Time to Die, Daniel Craig's final Bond film, Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, Terence Davies' Benediction. There, you know, These are films that um, we haven't touched on so far yet, but what are some of your key British films outside of uh, the ones we've mentioned so far? Well, I, I love Mothering Sunday, which is uh, directed by Frances Eva Hassan, scripted by Alice Birch, based on the Graham Swift novel. I think it's on the surface, particularly from the title, it sort of sounds like a very cosy British period drama film, but it is so not that. Incredibly sexy performances from Odessa Young and Josh O'Connor with Colin Firth and Olivia Coleman. I think it's got a lot of elements that would appeal to BAFTA voters, but whether or not it will just have enough heft to capture their attention uh, remains to be seen. Charles, I really agree with you on that. that Mothering Sunday is a really sexy film. It's so rare that you get films that are genuinely sort of sensual, and, and I believe Mothering Sunday is one of them, totally recommended. Another sexually frank and, and sensual film is True Things, directed by Harry Woodliffe. That's amazing. And then I just want to highlight Jack Loudon's performance in Benediction, which is um, directed by Terence Davies, and about the war poet uh, Siegfried Sassoon. It's an amazing performance. It's just an absolutely fantastic performance. I'm a big fan of Jack Loudon. He was in Stars of Tomorrow years ago, um, 2014, and oddly enough, sort of was nominated for Breakthrough Talent last year. He's such a great actor. He's a young actor, but he's a really, really great actor. And he carries this film completely. And so I'm really hoping that he gets a Best Actor nomination, not a Breakthrough, because for me, he's well broken through. I agree. I think, and I know, Matt, you're a big fan of Jack Loudon's performance in Benediction. I am indeed. I thought he was amazing in the film, and I really hope he gets uh, he gets recognition this award season. But I think we do have to mention No Time to Die because it's such it's such a big presence. It's this film that has taken more at the box office than any other film this year by a mile, by a mile, and it's closing on 100 million pounds at the UK and Ireland box office. The next biggest film is like 22 million pounds. So it is an extraordinary achievement. Casino Royale won Best British Film back in 2007 and Skyfall was nominated in 2013. So although both Quantum of Solace and Spectre didn't find much, much love, I think that No Time to Die is the final Daniel Craig film. It has a real chance at, in the outstanding British feature. And then there are technical categories where this film could also really flourish. And what about Daniel Craig? It's his final outing as James Bond. Do we think he has a chance to be nominated in the actor category? It's an interesting one because I don't know if you people recall, I'm just recalling the third Lord of the Rings movie, which did so well at the awards, particularly the Oscars. And it, and it felt like it was, it was kind of winning awards on behalf of the trilogy. So, you know, is it possible that No Time to Die will sort of 
get a kind of career win for the five Daniel Craig Bond movies. Maybe that could happen. And it's also the case, too, it's a bit of a heroic story, isn't it? It comes in and when we're all in the pandemic and we're waiting for it to kind of, you know, put life back into the box office and it surges through and it more than puts life back in. I didn't realise it was 100 million. That's that's it's- a round of applause. That's, that's amazing. I'm so happy that had an, such a great ending. So, yes, you know, it is show business. So, so that might motivate some votes when it comes down to it. And it's achieving that worldwide as well. It's now, for the American studios, it's uh, surpassed uh, Fast and Furious 9 as the biggest box office grocer this year. There are two Chinese films which have made more money, but No Time to Die is continuing to perform at cinemas around the world. Uh, so a great achievement by everybody involved with the film, and, and congratulations to Eon Productions. To wrap up today's podcast, Charles and Finn, what, do you want to single out any particular British performances uh, in films that we haven't discussed that you think are key contenders for this year's uh, races? I'll start by highlighting Benedict Cumberbatch's performance in The Power of the Dog, which is Jane Campion's film. He plays a Montana rancher who is um, a rather tortured individual. It's a very brilliant, austere film. It's uh, on Netflix, and it's probably the best that we've seen Benedict Cumberbatch really in, in a long time. He's subsumed into this character. It's quite something so I would be very surprised if he's not a very leading contender everywhere really everywhere there there are awards I expect Benedict Cumberbatch to figure for his performance this year I totally agree with you Finn about Benedict he's been nominated uh, once before at Oscar and BAFTA for the imitation game I think he's definitely going to double that and could very well win Talking about British performance, but in international films or American films, I love Andrew Garfield in Lin-Manuel Miranda's Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, based on Jonathan Larson, who wrote Rent. And it's it's a film that is, is very, you know, unapologetically about the world of musical theatre. It's about a, a man who is obsessed with writing his first production. And it makes no, yeah, it makes no bones about that. But I thought Andrew was great in that. He's also in the eyes of Tammy Faye, which is uh, playing a TV evangelist, uh, Jim Baker, with Jessica Chastain. But I think that his nomination will much more likely come for Tick, Tick, Boom. And then we've also got, I mean, I, I just want to just mention Riz Ahmed in Encounter, Michael Pierce's film, which Michael Pierce, British filmmaker, making his first film in America, Really strong performance by Riz. I just don't feel that that film is kind of getting a huge amount of traction from awards voters, but people should, yeah, people should definitely watch it. And then I'd like to put in a final word for Olivia Coleman, who's such a, an award season staple. It's almost kind of unbelievable. But then again, so is she. And her performance in Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Last Daughter really is really is strong. The film itself is really unusual in that it depicts a kind of indifferent mother, if not absentee, neglectful, sometimes angry. And Oliva Coleman just brings that performance, just gives it weight and depth. And she's such a natural talent. It's based on the Elena Ferrante story set in Greece. And there's just an air of intrigue and danger to it that comes out of the direction, but it also comes out of the unpredictability, really, of Coleman's depiction of the character. You never really get a firm hand on her. And I expect to see her nominated as well. And she's just a red carpet staple. And like Joanna Hogg and other people we've mentioned here, and almost everyone we've mentioned here, we're lucky to have her. Well, thank you, Charles and Finn. That brings us to the end of this portion of the podcast, but please stay tuned for Finn's interview with Joanna Hogg, which is coming up next. Thanks, Finn and Charles. Cheers, Matt. 
Thank you, Matt. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. We've been talking about British cinema and British films, and we've been talking about the BAFTAs, and I want to talk to you about Souvenir 2. But the first thing I think I want to ask you is, chronologically, could you put it in a bit of context for us? Because between lockdowns and COVID and different award cycles and whatever, it seems a long time since you conceived it, shot the first, made the second, and now here we are. So... Could you yeah. tell us a bit about that? Yes, I get a little bit confused myself, to be honest, <laughs> because I've since shot something else. So it's a little bit of a, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. But um, I guess a quick uh, sort of summary of it is that in around 2015, I decided to make these two films and I wanted in an ideal world to shoot them together. Uh, it was necessary that they were two separate pieces, but I wanted to shoot them at the same time. And then for all sorts of reasons, practical, financial, and so on, I had to shoot the first one first and then wait a bit before that I could make the second one. And I, I worried a little bit, bit about that because I thought if I just get the chance to make the first one, then something will happen and get in the way of not making the second one. And for me, they're inseparable uh, in a way. So I always intended to make these two films. The second one wasn't an afterthought. And so in 2019, the first one came out and then that same year, almost while the first one was being released, I was shooting the second one. And then, yes, as you say, because of COVID and everything going on, it's only until now that part two is what well, hasn't even come out yet in the UK. It's yes. come out in the States, not here. Where it's already sort of, you know, on top of a lot of critics' lists, as was the first. I, I just wonder, you say they're inseparable. How would you recommend watching them? Can you watch the second without having seen the first? Should you watch them together? Should you leave time between the two? What's your ideal situation for us? Yeah, I wouldn't prescribe any way as being ideal. And I didn't know how it would work watching the second one without seeing the second one. But now I've come across quite a few people who watched the second one without having experienced the first. And it made sense to them. And in some ways, that's quite nice to then watch to watch the second one and then you've got something to discover afterwards retrospectively in a way so I think they can be watched either way around I also quite like when the films are shown back to back so that I think mm. it's a more intense experience of watching the first one and the second one as a double bill because it's almost like one film is a conversation about another film in a way it's quite hard to, to take them apart like that that's right. So that, that, I think that's why I can't say you've got to see them in this way. I think people will experience them in different ways. Some people may have not liked the first one. Um, I've come across people who haven't liked the first one, but have really liked the second one. So there's no way of knowing how someone's going to experience them. You know, it's such a personal piece. And obviously, you know, the characters that you create, Julie and Anthony in the first and then the continuation of Julie's story, they're so vivid and real and of their time. And you're writing about them and it's personal and you're looking back and it's a real picture of how life was there, you know, at that time for a woman, you know, it all plays in very neatly. You know, you're writing the first and then the first is finished and then there's a delay between the shooting. Is there a temptation to go and change things a little because of the first or look back on it with a different eye and give Julie a little bit more benefit given to what you think today or how did you get back to her and keep with her at that time? Yes. Well, I, I mean, in the end, having wanted to shoot both films together, there was a lot of benefit in not doing that. And I added so many more new thoughts and ideas in that time in between. 
now I can't remember exactly how it was going to be before and how it was afterwards, but I know the idea of the film within the film, for example, I don't think I'd had that idea in my original uh, script. And then there was so much experience of shooting the first one that went into the second one. Honor playing Julie, lived a whole life in between the two films and so came to the second one with a lot more experience of, of not only life, but also experience of making a film. So it's hard to sort of pull all that apart, but the, mm. a, a lot was gained from, from making that second one when we did. I remember now when you asked that question that um, at one point I thought it was really important that I hadn't fixed the first one and finished the edit of the first one before I edited the second one. Uh, of course, I wasn't able to do that. I had to fix the first one. And actually, now thinking about it, I never thought for a moment during the edit of the second one, oh, I wish I hadn't finished the first one because now I would change things about it. It was like the first one was done. It is what it is. And it needed to be fixed in some ways. And then the, the, the second one sort of dances around the first one. But I think if I'd had that option to edit both together, I probably would have gone a bit crazy. Yes, because you, it, it all looks very fluid and, and natural. And, you know, obviously it's, you know, parts of it possibly are and parts of it most definitely you would know are not. So how much you talked a bit about talking with Honor, like, you know, how much did that play into the first and the second and the two Julies we see who are the same Julie, of course, but, you know. <laughs> well, it was very different uh, working with Honor on the two films because the first one she'd never made a film before, she'd observed filmmaking before, but she'd never been in a film playing a fictional part like that before. And I, I was very aware of not wanting to give her too much information. I didn't want to sort of crowd her mind sort of intellectually. I wanted her to be able to feel very instinctively through the story of the film, rather like I do as a director uh, in the way that I make films. So she, she didn't see a plan. She didn't know where the film was going to end up, the first one. It was very much moment by moment, scene by scene as we were shooting it. So she wasn't party to the process in that way, other than what we were doing at a particular time. And with the second one, because quite a bit of time had passed between them, and I thought, well, Julie knows at the beginning of the second one where she wants to go. She knows where she's going in a sense. And it made sense for Honor to see the plan of the story and know where the story was going. So she was much more actively involved as a collaborator in the second one than the first one. And, you know, it was much more conscious of the filmmaking process and her role as playing the part of Julie. Did she have opinions on Julie? Because I think myself, you know, it's such a it's such a privilege to be watching a filmmaker kind of come into their sensibilities and their relationship with film and filmmaking and, and watching it unveil. But but at the same time, Julie can come across as she can be passive and she can be terribly naive and very sort of, you know, um, her emotions can be withheld and then also very apparent too. And Honor comes from a, to a different generation. You know, it's, it's 30 years ago. Did she have opinions or how was that dynamic? between you yeah well she very much is who she is and that's not Julie and going into the second one it was a joy for both of us to see that honor could as Julie comes out of herself honor emerges through that and I think she felt restricted and a little bit held back by the character of Julie in the first part because she was playing against herself she was fighting her own instincts sometimes and I always knew, though, that she would have this pleasure ahead of being able to open out and, and show herself more in the second film. Because the second film is much funnier. A lot of laughter in the screening I was at. 
I hope so. I get real pleasure when I hear that. I like that people see the humour in it because that's definitely uh, an intention to have that humour there. It's really important. And also there's a lot more joy in the second one. So I think maybe the people who don't get along with the first one, you know, maybe they feel the sort of limits of it, the kind of, I can't think of the right words really, but the held backness of it. And in the second one, it's sort of, I always, I'm gesturing a lot, which no one's going to see on the podcast. But <laughs> it, you know, it has a lot of joy in it. Yes, and movement, momentum, and yes, elegance, and yes, all those great things. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you, it's been a conversation, it's been an experience for viewers and, and for you and for collaborators, it's been joyous, but is it over? Is that is the conversation over now? 2015 to now, is that in your life, is that done? Well, it feels like uh, that's quite a long conversation to have. <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to continue to have that particular conversation. Of course, what I take from each film does sort of join them together. I sort of see in a way all the films that I've made so far have connections with each other. So those connections will continue. You know, there won't be a third part, but there may be a further conversation that stems from this one. Also, too, you know, you were not making films very fast before you know you sort of late to start and then slow and very deliberate and now it seems from the outside perspective but then again we have talked about time being a little bit distorted because of COVID that you've suddenly gotten prolific <laughs> does it feel like that to you or that things have escalated in, in your professional career to a point that you're you know happy with and and want to be in yeah well it has happened I don't know what, whether that's an I don't think it's an intentional thing of course there is a the question of you know getting older and time you know getting uh, diminished but I don't think I'm really thinking that you know it takes so much energy to make a film and and it does take time but I yeah I, w I want to make many more films but I'm I think after the one that I'm finishing at the moment the new one the Eternal Daughter, I think after that, I probably will have a little bit of a pause because I, you know, I need to think a bit about what to do next. Um, and what's happened, presumably, as well. It's been quite a few years. Exactly. And yes, a little break would be nice. And out of that break may come something new. I mean, could you tell us about The Eternal Daughter? Because that was sort of a secret project. Well, secret, you know, I mean, under the radar, shall we call it, that you shot uh, during lockdown, was it? It was during the, I, I lose track myself, and yes. during the second lockdown. This time last year, actually, that we were shooting it. And now we've finished editing, picture editing it, and we're sound mixing. So it's sort of on the way to getting finished. And I can't talk about it yet, not because it's secretive, or because I don't want to talk about it, but because I'm still figuring it out. I find that when I'm immersed in the process of making a film, I can't step outside and, and, and see what the thing is. So whatever I say about it now may not have any relevance in a, in a few yes. months' time. But it's, uh, yeah, it feels like a, a new register for me. I don't feel, I'm hoping that I'm not repeating myself. I need to keep interested just for myself, let alone anyone else. And so I like to try out new things. Well, you are working with Tilda Swinton again with that. So that's another circle, isn't it? I guess. That's true. That's true. And that's one of those lines that yeah, yeah. goes from one film to another. I mean, you spoke earlier about, you know, the reason you had to pause between the souvenir part one and part two was, was due to financing, putting the two together. Is, is that something that's now as a result of the success of those two films coming a little bit easier for you or less of a challenge? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it was always going to be difficult to raise money to shoot two films at one time anyway. So I'm not sure if that would be any different now. I mean, I just feel I'm sort of living from kind of, you know, one breath to the next. I, you know, you just never know what 
challenges you might encounter. And I suppose because of starting to make feature films at a slightly later stage, I'm maybe a bit more cautious, isn't really the right word, but uh, I'm very superstitious. You know, I don't think it's easy making films and raising money for films. And I, I wouldn't say it's easy for me now, but mm. I hope to make many more of them. And certainly The Eternal Daughter was, it was a wonderful thing because we did manage to get that off the ground very swiftly. And that may have been the product of, of the two previous films. And for the souvenir as well, you have this sort of help or the godfathering of Martin Scorsese. Do you think that sort of helped you break down the doors? Because the first part it premiered at Sundance in the World Cinema section, which is quite a small section for first and normally, you know, first and second time filmmakers. And to my mind or to our minds in the UK, you were pretty established, you know, going into that section, but perhaps not in the US. I mean, how did, did you feel about the parts that they've taken and then, you know, can a year and a half later? How was that for you? Yeah, well, that's certainly the sort of festival circuit experience has definitely changed for me. I mean, when I made Unrelated, I couldn't get a festival to take on that film for love or money. I mean, then, the, you know, fortunately, the London Film Festival and Sandra Hebron came into the picture and was incredibly supportive and that began something. But now, yes, it is, it is easier. I mean, I would say that the ability to make films at this point in time is obviously... Martin Scorsese is, you know, an incredible um, collaborator and I have very, you know, amazing conversations with him, creative ones with him. In this country, I'm very lucky to have BBC Films, Rose Garnet in particular is, is, is an incredible force and has, you know, enabled me to make these ambitious films. And then the BFI and uh, Lizzie Frankie, it's also has been, uh, you know, incredible in supporting me. And then now I'm I'm very tentative early steps getting to be known more in the States. And I'll ask you a final question, which is how do you feel about awards? I mean, we're at that time of year, we were just talking about the BAFTAs, you know, in them, nominated, not in them. Is it just something that you you think about a lot or don't think about, or you think about the film that will help the film more? I, I just just curious. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, the, my main uh, focus is making the films and making them as well as I can possibly make them. And that's not just for myself, but that's for all my collaborators in front of the camera and behind the camera. And I think awards are meaningful in many ways. I think it's about sustainability, about being able to make more films and then you get you know, you get noticed if you get awards. But I also am very strong on wanting my collaborators to uh, be recognised. So when Stéphane Collange gets uh, an award at Biffa and Helen Lefebvre, my editor, gets an award and Grace Chanel, my costume designer, that means a huge amount to me that they get recognised quite rightly. I suppose as well, they help the films become much more visible. It's not a suppose, it's a fact. And it's a film by a female filmmaker about being a female filmmaker. And that's kind of really, really important as well. I mean, you know, things have changed since your time at the NFTS and since Julie's time at the NFTS. What's your, as a final question, final, final, what's your overall sense of like trying to be a daring filmmaker in the establishment of cinema, you know, which sort of tends to make remake things that are successful and being a woman today is is it an easier path is it you know is it getting better is there room for optimism do you think I mean I think there is I mean I find that you know any struggles I have are sort of often uh, internal ones they're sort of uh, fighting with myself and yeah I think if you uh, 
talking about other filmmakers and, and filmmakers or students who want to be filmmakers, uh, yeah, I think trying to sort of push through one's uh, sort of comfort of what one knows or, well, I guess I'm not doing a very good job at that because I'm basing a lot on my own experience, but in terms of just being brave in how you approach mm. things and how you tell stories, I think that's, yeah. The only it's, it's improving and, and definitely you it's okay to sort of watch the souvenir and souvenir part two and, and see it and accept it but it's very brave filmmaking and you were brave to talk about you know brave at the time as julie to defy her tutors and you know and, and for you to do to do the same thing do you look back on it and think oh, i'd never do that now or i'm so proud of her or you know well when you're saying that i think i can always be more brave actually because mm -hmm. there are areas that are maybe very personal where i think yes i could sort of push push those things more yeah like I say the fight is with myself oh, right. Right. <laughs> it's it's yeah there's always more more to do and there's always I always want to challenge myself and try and tell stories in different ways that's brilliant to hear and, and look thank you very much for spending us the time on screen international I know you're very busy thank you so much Joanna oh thank you very much you know it's been a pleasure thank you so that brings us to the end of this episode of The Screen Podcast. Thank you very much to my colleagues, Finn and Charles, and thank you to our guest for today's podcast, Joanna Hogg. And thank you also very much for listening today. Our next awards-themed episode will be coming out before the end of the year, so do keep an eye out for that. Until then, keep up with the latest news from the international screen industries at screendaily.com, and let us know what you thought about this episode at our social media outposts, including at ScreenDaily on Twitter. This episode was produced by Danielle Koch. Tune in next time. We'll see you then.